Our sermon this morning is on the story of Ruth. We're going to keep working through the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, uh, giving particular attention to the females that are mentioned in it. We've seen Tamar, the daughter-in-law of uh, Judah, who kind of gets strung along by her, by her uh, husband and then by his brother and then uh, has to take matters into her own hands by seducing her own father-in-law and conceiving children with him. Then we saw the story of Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, who lies essentially to the, to the police to kind of, uh, you know, help the Israelite spies and later becomes a part of the nation of Israel. Today we come to Ruth. Uh, Ruth is kind of a, a feel-good story among, among these other ones in terms of the, the females that are mentioned here. Um, she's so much so that she gets her own book of the Bible. So, so turn to Matthew 1, keep your finger on uh, the entire book of Ruth. We'll cover four chapters there. Ruth, unlike some of these other women, uh, is not herself guilty of any you know, uh, sexual sin or anything like that. She's a totally morally upstanding, uh, you know, person. Although there is kind of some scandal and some stigma kind of associated with Ruth for, for some things that we'll get as we work through the, the story. Some people actually say that about all of the women in Jesus's genealogy. So they'll look at, at Tamar and say, she did it like Tamar just was forced, you know, the, the ultimate sin was, was against, against Tamar, right? Judah and then his sons were sinning against her. And so she was kind of an, an innocent victim who did what she was forced to do. Same thing with Rahab, right? She was a prostitute, but uh, the majority of prostitutes in that time were kind of sold into it or trafficked into it or forced into it. Even Bathsheba, right? So we'll look at the story of Bathsheba next week. Uh, some people say, you know, the story of Bathsheba and David wasn't so much the story of an adulterous woman, um, but rather it was, it was a, like rape. David raped uh, Bathsheba. And there was like a very significant power dynamic going on between the king of a vast country and then a woman who, you know, he has set his eye on. So uh, either way, those are kind of other conversations for other time. But the bottom line is Ruth for sure was morally upstanding, right? D- didn't, uh, you know, do anything thing wrong. Any, any kind of, uh, you know, scandal that surrounds Ruth has more to do with, uh, you know, the sins of others, uh, or just kind of maybe misperceptions or kind of assumptions, that kind of thing. But we'll read, this is our whole text. <laughs> so we'll, we'll read just this one verse in Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll jump over to the, the um, story of Ruth in the Old Testament. So the text from Matthew is Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. That's all, all it takes to get from the mention of Rahab to the mention of Ruth immediately on its heels. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would... Uh, bless these next few minutes as we uh, read your word. We pray that you would help us to see the glory of Jesus in your word. We pray that you would help us to be receptive to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we hear and listen and sit under your word. Lord, we pray that you would be uh, shaping us and forming us and sanctifying us by your word. And we ask that uh, in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so first things first, this was a quick, it was a short story. So, so Boaz, the father of Obed by, by Ruth. So one question that immediately uh, kind of jumps up is, uh, was, was Rahab, who we heard about last week, was that Ruth's mother-in-law? Because immediately, you know, Rahab gave birth to Boaz, and, and Boaz ultimately marries Ruth and gives birth to Obed. So, so was Rahab uh, Ruth's mother-in-law? And the answer is, uh, yeah, maybe, possibly, not necessarily. Um, so when we look at these genealogies in the Old Testament, um, they, they, like, 
it very well could be that, that each person was the father of the next person and so on and so forth. That could certainly be the case. The problem with that, or the, the, the trick with that, interpreting that, is that um, like if you kind of pin some of these names in the genealogies in the Old Testament and in Matthew, pin them to certain dates that we know when they were, and kind of look at the span, you'll wind up sometimes with like these big, huge you know, gaps of hundreds of years and only like, you know, one or two or three names to kind of fit, fit in there. And so you're left kind of thinking, well, I guess that, you know, uh, you know, people were giving birth, you know, men were conceiving uh, of children when they were 150 and 200 years old, uh, or maybe there are some, some names and some names that were left out. And so what, what, uh, what a lot of scholars think is that when, when historians, when, when the the people who wrote the gospels and wrote the genealogies in the old Testament, were writing these, they would just condense them. And they would put the most important names. They would put, uh, you know, the, the names that kind of read the, the best and that kind of thing. And they would just kind of leave out some of the big lo- names in a big long list of, of names. So uh, here's how D.A. Carson uh, kind of explains it. He says, doubtless, several names uh, have been omitted. In fact, when you read the original language, the verb translated as was the father of uh, does not require immediate relationship, but often means something like he was the ancestor of, or he became the progenitor of. And whether the names that were omitted properly fit before Boaz, so that Rahab was not the immediate mother of Boaz, or after Boaz, or both, uh, one cannot be sure. He also points to Genesis chapter 3, uh, where the author refers to Eve as the mother of all of the living. He's like, well, obviously Eve, what, like Eve's not your mother, not my mother, like not our direct mother, but she was kind of the, the mother, like in a general sense of all of the living. And so that's kind of how they would use the term father and how they would work these genealogies. So uh, if we, might, we might not be immediately, you know, dealing with one generation removed from Rahab, or maybe we are, not entirely, entirely sure. But uh, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, uh, let's let's flip over to Ruth and just kind of try to work our way through the the majority of this of the story and kind of hit the the broad strokes. We'll start in verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, and so this is immediately after the conquest of the promised land, before uh, any of the kings, and kind of you know synchronous with the book of Judges. The days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn to the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and, his, and his, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. So you've got Elimelech. His name means, my God is the king. Uh, and he takes his wife, Naomi, and her, her name means, my delight. So when she's born, her parents are delighting that they're having a child that's born. And then they take their two sons, they, they take, yeah, their, their two sons, which uh, their names mean sick and dying, respectively. Malon and Kilion. Well, one is like sick or ill, and the other is wasting away and, and kind of, you know, dying. And so they take these two sons, which were tragically named, and they, they're leaving, Bethle, the, the city of Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's a lot kind of packed up, packed in these like, you know, Hebrew names and just this first couple of, of verses there. They live in the house of bread, but there's no bread. They have to leave it. They have to go, they have to leave the house of bread in order to find food and bread to eat. And they take their, their children, 
uh, who, whose names are sick and dying, so it's not a surprise when we see that they die uh, shortly there, thereafter. They relocate to Moab. Moab is on the eastern side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. Moab is where the, the Israelites were hanging out uh, when they sent the spies over the Jordan River to go find Jericho last week that, that we heard about. So Moab is kind of this Transjordan area, the plains of Moab on the, the east. And so they travel there to Moab. And as soon as they get there, Elimelech dies. Uh, Malon and Kilion marry two Moabite women, uh, Ruth and, and then Orpah, and then Malon and Kilion promptly die. So now all that's left is Naomi and then her two daughters-in-law after her two sons have both, both died. And this is, this is, so this is like meant to kind of conjure, uh, you know, just a feel, like it's meant to make you a little bit uneasy as, as the, the listener because uh, an elderly woman with no husband and two daughters, daughter, daughter-in-laws with no males around is, is just a very vulnerable position for them all to be in. They have no one to protect them. They have no one to provide for them. They have, uh, you know, no earning power, no financial stability. None of them are ideal candidates for marriage because uh, most, most men wanted to marry women that had not been married before. So uh, all three of these women have been married. They're all uh, widows. Uh, all of them are kind of in a particularly vulnerable position. And so Naomi, if we flip to the next slide, Naomi hears that there's bread back in, she hears that there's food, that the famine essentially has ended in Bethlehem and she seeks to go back. But before she does, she basically gives her daughters-in-law an out. And she says, uh, I want you guys to go and return uh, Uh, return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you uh, may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So Naomi says, stay stay here in Moab, get married, find a husband here. Don't follow me back to Bethlehem. There's nothing for you there. And they say, no, we will return with you to your people. Verse 11, Naomi says, no, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I don't have any sons in my womb that can become your husbands. Turn back, go your way. I am too old to have a husband. Right? So she's like, if you're, if you're thinking that I am going to provide a husband for you, I can't. I'm too old. I don't have a husband. I can't find a husband. And even if I should have hope and say that I might find a husband this night and I should bear sons, what are you going to do? Wait for them to grow up before you marry them? Would you refrain from marrying for 15, 20 years until any sons that I might have would grow up? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I don't have any sons. I can't have any sons. You can't, like, I I don't have any way of providing husbands for you. Cut your losses. Stay home with your family. And Orpah does, right? Uh, Verse 15, uh, you know, Orpah takes her advice. She goes back home, but Ruth Ruth doesn't. Verse 15, she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave or return from following you. For where you go, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will be buried there. May the Lord do so to me, and even more, if anything but death 
departs me from you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to go back to Moab. I'm not going to find a husband there. I'm going to come with you. And if, if you die in transit, then I'll die with you. Now, quick, uh, quick kind of refresher course on Moab and who they were and kind of how their nation got started to kind of maybe help us understand what Ruth is thinking of, what she's experiencing, and kind of how she's understanding Moab and her family and her life where she came from, and Bethlehem where her mother-in-law is going back to. Moab, like I said, is east of the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea. Um, and now, now the Moabite people traced their uh, lineage back to Lot, to, to Abraham's nephew in Genesis chapter 13 and, and following. So Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. Genesis 13, uh, Abraham and Lot are, are kind of, they're, they're living, to, they're kind of in close proximity, but they're, they're getting richer, their herds are growing, and they're having difficulty. The land can't sustain both of their kind of clans at once. And so Abraham goes to Lot and he says, you've got a lot of, you know, herds and a lot of people and employees and you need a lot of space. I've got a lot of people and herds and employees and I need a lot of space. So let's go different ways. You pick whichever way you want to go and I will go the opposite way. You take whatever part of the land you think is better and I'll take whatever one you deem not as good. And that's kind of how they set up to go their different ways. Lot chooses to go to Sodom. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, several chapters later in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by God because of, their, because of their sin. And Lot and his family barely escape before that destruction happens. And immediately after their destruction, they're running away from the city of Sodom. They're looking back. They've seen that the city is burning and being destroyed. And they, they you know, there's no like CNN. There's no, you know, cable news. So they think that the whole world has been destroyed. So they're like running up into the hills and they're like, man, we, th- this, is, this is really bad. And that's where we pick up. Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters and he was afraid to live in Zoar. And he lived in a cave with his two daughters and they basically are like, this is it. The, the, the end of the world has come. We're the only people left in the entire world. Lived in the cave with his two daughters and the firstborn said to the younger, this is Lot's two daughters talking now, and she says, our father is old and there is not a man anywhere on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she uh, arose. Verse 34, the next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, last night I laid with our father. Let us make him drink wine again tonight also, so that you can lie with him, and that we may preserve the offspring of our father. So they made the father drink wine again. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay or when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their own father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. So that's the origin of the Moabite people, right? Incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters that's kind of, you know, born out of drunkenness and manipulation and and all all kinds of things. Over the years, the Moabite people uh, kind of you know, grew into, they, they kind of morphed into a, 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 you know, polytheistic, you know, like they, they would practice all, like worship other gods. They would practice child sacrifice and human sacrifice. They had all of this kind of stigma and, and kind of sin kind of baked into their culture and who they were as a people. And that's who Ruth is born into. Ruth is born into the Moabite people, 
right? She wasn't personally kind of embroiled in sexual skin and sexual sin and scandal, but she came from a people that were, that the origin of her, of her nation was. And so Ruth is looking at this kind of nation that she came from, the Moabite people. She looks at Naomi heading back to Bethlehem and she says, my chances are better if I go with my mother-in-law back to Bethlehem than if I stay here. So they go back to Bethlehem. And when they get in, like, when they get back to Bethlehem, Naomi shows her true colors. She like, you know, shows people like she is, she is like not sugarcoating it at all. She gets back to Bethlehem. She's, and they're all like, Hey, Naomi's back. And she has, you know, these two, these two, uh, you know, I guess her, her husband and her sons died, but she has these two daughters or she has Ruth with her, her daughter-in-law with her. That's good news. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means my delight. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. Mara means bitterness. Don't call me Naoma, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has been very bitter. He has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me my delight when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Right? I'm bitter. I'm mean. I'm cranky. Right? I, I have no idea how I'm going to provide for myself. And now I've got another mouth to feed. I've got Ruth kind of globbing on and I don't know how I'm going to take care of, of her. And I'm mean and I'm angry and leave me alone because I'm, I'm bitter. Now, Ruth chapter two, uh, Naomi and Ruth are living together in Bethlehem and Ruth realizes, all right, this is not, we're, we're in a bad situation. We're in, we're in dire straits here. So, so, you know, there's no men to, around to take responsibility or take care of us. It's me or no one. And Ruth goes out into the fields to begin to glean and to begin to bring back food for them to eat together. The Old Testament made provisions for these kinds of situations. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 20, and Deuteronomy 24, just a few places that you can look to, to see them. But basically, if you own a field, and you kind of have, have crops that you're growing in your field, the Old Testament kind of instructed field owners, property owners, to like not, just to, to, to leave some behind on purpose, right? There's no, you know, Medicaid, there's no, uh, you know, welfare system. And so if there's poor people that can't provide for themselves, like when you are, you know, harvesting your crops from your field, leave the very edges, right? Harvest all the rows, but don't go right to the very edge. Leave a little bit on the edge. Or if you're harvesting some, you're carrying it or it's in a wagon and some of it falls off onto the ground, don't turn around and go pick it up and put it in your wagon and take it into the storehouse. Just leave it on the ground. That way, if poor people come by, there will be some crops on the edges for them to eat or there will be some crops that maybe you dropped along the way that they can eat. And that's what Ruth is doing, right? She's kind of, all the poor people, all the homeless people would kind of come out and try to get food to eat. And Ruth is a part of them. She's one of them in chapter two. And while she's there, there's a guy named Boaz and he kind of arrives. Boaz owns the field. Boaz, you know, he looks, he's got like uh, an operation going. He's got employees and people and Ruth catches Boaz's eye and he asks one of his employees about, uh, about him. And the employee says, oh, that's, that's Ruth. She is married to Naomi, uh, but they're back now. And so in chapter two, Boaz calls Ruth over and he says, hey, you know, uh, make like for, un, until, until further notice, just hang out here in my field and eat food from my field and take food back to Naomi here from my field. Don't go to other people's fields because, you know, those, those guys are animals. They'll assault you. They'll, they'll, they'll harass you. So stay here in my field. I'll instruct my employees to look out for you and keep you safe and give you everything that we need. And Ruth is beside herself and she kind of falls, falls down and, and kind of is, is grateful to Boaz. Later in chapter two, Boaz um, 
has a meal. He has like a shift meal for all of his employees, and, uh, and he invites Ruth over, and he, you know, gives her food off of his table, gives her, you know, a big, you know, portion of food to take back uh, home to Naomi. So, so Boaz is kind of like taking a liking to Ruth. He's kind of making sure that Ruth gets everything that she needs and, and then some. Ruth gets home and Naomi is like, oh my goodness, like, you know, where did all of this, where did this large portion that you brought home uh, come from? And she's like, some guy gave it to me. And Naomi's like, I think he likes you. I think he's like, I think this guy's into you. Who is he? And she's like, I don't know. It's some guy named Boaz. And Naomi's like, oh my goodness, I know the name Boaz. Boaz is a relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. Now, if you remember back to the story last week with Tamar, wait, two weeks ago with Tamar, uh, the idea of a leveret marriage, which is where if you're, if a guy's married to a woman and the guy dies, then if he has a brother or a close relative, then his, he was kind of tasked with coming and marrying the widow and making sure she's taken care of, or at the very least, providing a, a male son for her so that she can be taken care of. And so that concept of leveret marriages had, you know, brothers and siblings and close relatives called redeemers. And, and Naomi says, Boaz is one of our redeemers. Like he's one of the people who uh, can, if he, if he chooses to, can marry you and can provide for us and can take care of us. And so, so Naomi is really excited and she says, go back to his field tomorrow. Like if you can try to cross paths with him, see if you can, you know, strike up a conversation like Boaz might be our ticket uh, out of poverty and kind of into some semblance of security. But then in Ruth chapter three, Naomi takes it even farther. It's not just go back to his field, keep getting food from there, like see if you can cross paths with him. But she's actually like Ruth, just like, you know, why don't you let's like let's make something happen a little bit so it's coming to the end of the harvest and uh and naomi's like look boaz is going to throw a big party for all of his employees and all of his family so you should go to that but don't just go like get dressed up first before you go so she instructs her to you know put on perfume like take a shower put on perfume put on a nice dress go find boaz and see if you can kind of you know strike up a conversation with him and ruth does exactly that Uh, She goes down to the threshing floor, and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the heap of grain, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, Boaz wakes up, and he's startled, and he turns over, and behold, there's a woman laying at his feet. And he says, who are you? And she answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer." Right, this in, in modern parlance, this would seem a little more uh, scandalous, like maybe there was some sort of sexual immorality going on. Doesn't, we don't have any reason to think that from, from this story. Uh, in fact, when she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, it kind of has the implication of, uh, yeah, you, you can provide for me, you can take care of me, please do that. If, if you are willing, we would like for you, my mother-in-law Naomi and I would like for you to take care of us and to, to help us. Now, Boaz says, may you be blessed, my daughter, right? For you have made this last kindness even greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. So Boaz says, Ruth is probably younger, probably attractive. And he's like, you, I mean, he's like, I don't, I mean, maybe you think that you'd be lucky to be with me, but I think you could probably find a better husband, someone who's younger, someone who, you know, is, is, is better than me. But like, I, I am flattered that you would take interest in me. So do not fear I will do for you all that you ask and for all my fellow townsmen uh, to know that you are a worthy woman. I will redeem you tomorrow. 
And so Ruth continued to lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, and then she arose before anyone could recognize one another. So while it's still dark, before anyone can even see who it is, Ruth gets up and kind of lets herself out so that there's no, like, scandal, no one kind of, you know, no rumors start or anything like that. Boaz sends her home, and Naomi says, wait, my daughter. Uh, uh, Yeah, so Ruth gets home, and, uh, and, and Naomi's like, oh my gosh, what happened? She tells her everything, and Naomi says, wait until you learn how this matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. So Ruth says, things are looking good. I think he likes you. I think he wants to marry you. Let's wait and see what happens. Now we're in Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So this is the other guy. Oh, so, so uh, one thing that, that Boaz said, I think I might have skipped over it, was that there's another guy who uh, is a closer relative to you and Naomi than I am. And so he gets right of first refusal. So I'm going to ask him if he wants to marry you, and if he does, great, but if he doesn't, then I will. So Boaz goes up and hears that guy, the closer relative, the Redeemer. And he says, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And the man turned aside and sat down. And then he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, I want you guys to sit down here. You guys are witnesses. And they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, great, redeem it. But if you will not, then tell me so that I may know because there's no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. So Boaz says, you know, I'm in, the, I'm in the market for Naomi's property. You get right of first refusal. If you want it, it's yours. Otherwise, I'm going to buy it. And the man says, I will redeem it. And then Boaz says, wait, there's a catch, right? Uh, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So caveat, right? You don't just get to buy Naomi's land, you also have to marry Ruth when you buy the land. It's a package deal. And the Redeemer says, I cannot buy it, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So this other guy says, you know, I... I was, was all about acquiring the land as an investment. I'm optimistic that it's going to appreciate, that I'll make a profit, but I don't have any interest in marrying Ruth because I don't need another mouth to feed. Uh, I don't want to have kids with Ruth. I don't need more you know, dependence on my tax return. I, I, I don't need more people holding their hand out when I die. Like It's going to dilute the inheritance of the kids that I already have. So I, I, like, I, I want the land. I've got the money to buy the land. I don't want Ruth, and I don't want to, to marry her or have a family with her. And Boaz jumps on it. Boaz buys Naomi's property from her. Uh, Boaz takes Naomi in as his mother-in-law. Boaz takes Ruth in as his wife. Boaz and Ruth uh, have a son. Right now, now Ruth and Naomi have Boaz to protect them and take care of them. Uh, you know, Naomi, when she gets older, she's got this guy Boaz to take care of her. When Ruth, uh, you know, when, when Boaz gets old and Ruth gets older, she's got a son who can take care of them. Them then, so everything is kind of like you know, it's a happy ending for the story. Verse fourteen: Blessed be the Lord. This is this is Naomi's friends who realize that she now has uh, a grandson. And someone to take care of her. And they say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. 
And may His name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, Ruth, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons. And she has given birth to a son. Right? So Ruth, they say, you know, uh, conventional wisdom would say that a daughter-in-law like Ruth is a liability. Someone that's going to eat all your food, run up all of your credit card bills, and ask you for money. Ruth is better for you than seven, you know, high-income sons that you might have otherwise had. She's faithful, she's diligent, and she is looking out for you. She cares about you, and she will stop at nothing to make sure that you are taken care of. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse, his babysitter, right, his his nanny. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named the son Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, and he was the father of David. So Naomi left Israel because there's no food. Her husbands and her sons died. She ended up with a daughter-in-law that she had to take care of. She was bitter. She was angry. But Ruth took care of her. Ruth was loyal to her. Ruth married Boaz. They gave Naomi a grandson. The grandson would be the start of this line that would eventually culminate in King David. And then even after that, culminate in King Jesus, the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Right? The sovereign king, not only of Israel, but of all of the universe. That's the story of Ruth. And Naomi and, and Boaz. Now, same question we've been asking, uh, the story of Tamar and the story of Rahab. Same one that we'll be asking with Bathsheba and with Mary, which is, wh- why is this story here? Why, why was this particular person chosen to be in uh, Jesus' genealogy? What are the implications? What are the application points that we might see for ourselves in the story of Ruth? We've got just two of them. So, so the first point of application uh, is, is meant for, for us as Christians, as we're seeking to live our lives, glorify God, live out our faith, we can look to Ruth as an example of, of faith and devotion and loyalty. So the first point would be live your life, live your Christian life with a Ruth-like faith, devotion, and, and loyalty. Again, consider the story of Ruth, consider her situation, consider kind of her choices, consider, you know, what she's, what, what her options are at any, at any given point along the way. She's living in Moab, living among a people marked by unrepentant sin, deception, idolatry, right? That's the culture she's born into. One day these two brothers show up randomly, Malon and Kilion, right? Random refugees coming from a famine, uh, you know, torn land across the river, right? And, and they don't look particularly impressive. They're probably puny and sickly. And I mean, again, their names mean sick and wasting away. And so Ruth kind of looks, looks at these two refugees who have very little to offer from a homeland that has very little to offer. And she looks behind her at Moab. And here is, uh, you know, everything that's familiar, an entire network and support structure, right? A life that promises to be stable and comfortable, and Ruth decides, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to marry one of these two guys. And then even when that guy dies, I'm going to follow my mother-in-law back to a foreign land where I'm going to be an immigrant. I won't know the culture. Everyone's going to think less of me. Everyone's going to look at me as a second-class citizen because I'm in, in Moab. Even when her mother-in-law gives her a chance, she kind of gives her an out. Hey, go back to Moab. I'm telling you, I'm not going to be mad if you do. I think you should. It's in your best interest. Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be faithful to you. 
right? Ruth says, here behind me is a city of, of, you know, wealth and riches. I can find a husband. I can live a comfortable life. The catch is it's marked by sin and by rebellion against God and by indifference to the law of God. Or I can kind of take this hard, difficult journey to a land where there may or may not be any food with a woman who may or may not be able to provide for me. But the catch is that is the, that is the land of God. That's the, the land of the people of, of God. And Ruth just like Rahab last week, right? Decides to put her life not into her own hands, not into the hands of her people, not into the hands of the world that promises to take care of her, but she decides to put her life into the hands of God and follow God and serve God and live for God and honor God. Ruth is an example to us of faithfulness and loyalty to God and to God's word. Right? Because we have, we have similar choices in our lives today like Ruth did, right? I'm, I'm, you know, am I going to walk this kind of broad, downhill, comfortable way of the world that ends in destruction? Or am I going to walk this difficult, narrow, uphill path of discipleship that ends in the presence of Jesus? Am I going to lie, cheat, uh, steal to get what I want? Am I going to put myself first and prioritize my preferences over those of others? Am I going to, you know, have a short temper, walk around with a sense of entitlement about everything? Am I going to demand that people walk on eggshells around me all the time? Am I going to never repent when I do anything wrong and insist that everyone, you know, kind of demand a pound of flesh from everyone when they don't meet my expectations? Am I going to love money and, and hoard all of my money so that I can have a comfortable life and be secure in and of myself while I'm indifferent to all of the people around me? Am I going to hunker down in what's familiar and what's comfortable and live life like the world with no regard for God? Or am I going to be like Ruth? Am I going to leave home? Am I going to venture out into the unknown toward God, toward the people of God, trusting in God to save me, trusting in the character of God and in the sovereign grace of God instead of trusting in myself and my resources and my righteousness and my spirituality? Am I, am I going to love myself and look out for myself and care about myself? Or am I going to love my neighbor and look out for my neighbor and care about my neighbor, right? Ruth had uh, opportunity after opportunity to love herself more than her neighbor and to love herself more than God. And she continued to look out for Naomi and pursue God. We as Christians have countless opportunities where we can follow the world or we can follow God. We can serve the world or we can serve God. We can worship ourselves and our own preferences or we can worship God. And Ruth kind of sets an example for what it looks like to be faithful and devoted and loyal to God, even when it's costly, even when it's difficult, even when it's um, not the path of least resistance, right? Even when you, even when the world thinks that you're, that you're crazy. That's point one. Live your life as a Christian with a Ruth-like faith and devotion and loyalty. And the second point of application that we can bring from Ruth, I think, is to look to Jesus as our Boaz-like Redeemer, Savior, and Restorer. Right? So live out your Christian faith with a Ruth-like faith, devotion, and loyalty. Look to Jesus as your Boaz-like Savior, Redeemer, and Restorer. All right, so tell me if the story of it sounds familiar, right? 
Here's Boaz. Boaz is a wealthy patriarch in Israel. He's got tons of property, thriving business, employs tons of people. He treats them well. He shows up. He works shoulder to shoulder with all of his employees. He gives them food, you know, when, when they're eating, they're, they're, when they're working, he eats with them, right? Boaz is well thought of by everyone in the city. People trust him. They respect him. The elders of the city gather around him. They, they like him. They think highly of him. Boaz wants for nothing. He's a man of means. He doesn't need anything from anybody. Boaz is a good man. He's a good son. He's a good neighbor. He's a good businessman. He's a good employer. He's a good citizen. Boaz is perfectly content within himself. He doesn't need anything from anybody. If Boaz wanted to get married, he could marry anyone he wanted. He could, he could rise above his station, marry someone, you know, marry someone that was from a, a royal family or something, right? Boaz, right? Boaz can, can kind of live whatever life he wants, doesn't need anything from anyone. And yet for some reason, Boaz sees Ruth and Boaz says, I like Ruth. I want to be with Ruth. I want to take care of Ruth. Here's, here's an immigrant, Moabite, impoverished, needy, dependent widow who has nothing to offer him, right? He doesn't need anything from her. She has nothing to offer him. And Boaz approaches Ruth. Boaz asks about Ruth. Boaz provides for Ruth. Boaz gives of his vast riches, of all of his possessions, he gives to Ruth. More than she deserves, more than she needs. Boaz pursues Ruth. He, he takes up the cause of Ruth. He's invested in Ruth's well-being. He cares about her, cares what happens to her. Boaz sacrifices his own time and money and resources to ensure that Ruth is taken care of. He protects Ruth from danger and from harm. He protects him from his neighbors who would try to hurt her or assault her. He takes in Ruth's mother-in-law. Uh, as, as his own, someone to take care of, right? And ultimately, Boaz marries Ruth. He commits to her. He covenants with her. He brings her into his house as his bride. He provides her offspring so that she uh, is taken care of for her whole entire life. He grows old with her. He never leaves her side. And he makes sure that she is safe and happy and taken care of uh, well into old age. That's, that's who Boaz is, and that's how Boaz treats Ruth. And so then the question is, right, like, who else do you know that, that, that wants for nothing? Who else do you know that is the possessor of limitless, vast resources and, and wealth? Who do you know that has lived for all of eternity in heaven, enjoying perfect, awesome, glorious fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit within the confines of the Trinity? Who, you know, uh, lives where, where streets are paved with gold? He has everything he needs, nothing. And yet, for some strange reason, he has decided to take notice of a people. Right? A people who have sinned against him, a people who have alienated themselves from him, a people who have nothing to offer him, a people who are rightly deserving of his wrath, and yet for some strange reason, he has purposed to save them. He has purposed to win them back and tend to take care of them no matter what it costs him. Right? Someone who has said, I am going to take of my vast wealth and I'm going to spend myself into poverty for the sake of these people that I love. I'm going to, I'm going to purchase them out of their bondage of slavery and sin, right? But unlike Boaz, who it costs him, you know, maybe a, a chunk of his, of his net worth, some of his, his money, right? The, uh, it would cost this man his very life. He would give his life to win his people back. 
He would establish a covenant with them and secure their salvation and forgive their sins and ensure that they will be safe and protected and cared for for all of eternity. Right? Who else do you know that is a redeemer and a savior and a restorer like Boaz? Boaz sees Ruth, loves her, saves her at great cost to himself. And Jesus sees his people, loves them, and saves them even at great cost to himself. Ruth is the recipient of Boaz's generosity and unmerited favor. And the church is the recipient of Jesus's generosity and unmerited favor. Charles Spurgeon uh, referred to Boaz as our great and or referred to Jesus as our great and glorious Boaz. He says, let us magnify the generosity of our glorious Boaz. Jesus, like Boaz, Jesus sees his people. Jesus loves his people. Jesus saves his people. Jesus leaves his throne in heaven. He comes into the presence of his people lives among them as a poor carpenter, a homeless preacher. Jesus gives his life as a sacrifice. He's punished in the place of his people. Jesus hangs on a cross and is crushed by the wrath of God for his people so that they might be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to him, and enjoy his presence forever and ever. Jesus is our our glorious Boaz who's been generous and gracious and who has redeemed and saved and restored his people. And we, in turn, are called to be like Ruth. We are called to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to commit to Jesus, and to continually recommit to Jesus moment by moment, day after day, for the rest of our entire lives. And that's what we do at Communion. Is, is we, we recommit, right? We recognize that Jesus has treated us better than we deserve to be treated. Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus has shed his blood so that we could be reconciled to him. And we recommit, we reaffirm our vows to Jesus. We say, I love Jesus. I'm grateful to Jesus for dying for me and saving me. And I trust him. And I place my life into his hands. And we eat the bread and we drink the wine as a way of saying, I love Jesus and I am committed to him. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, we have uh, individually wrapped, sanitary, uh, you know, uh, communion elements right up here. So while the last song is being played, just kind of come up, socially distance, grab one, uh, you know, take a moment, pray, remember the truth of the gospel, remember the glory of Christ, and kind of reaffirm your commitment to him. Eat the bread, drink the juice, throw the stuff away in the trash can in the, in the back. If you're not a Christian, uh, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, we would invite you to trust in Jesus. We would invite you to respond to the mercy and the glory of Christ by trusting him and and committing yourself to him so that you can take communion with us uh, in in the future. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing and take communion. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our great and glorious 
Redeemer and Savior. Lord, we thank You that You have seen us when we were needy and helpless and that You drew near to us and loved us and pursued us and saved us. And Lord, we pray that we could respond to You uh, like Ruth. That we, could, that we could leave behind the, the, the world of sin that we were from, that we could trust in You and follow You and hold fast to You no matter what happens. Lord, help us to, to glorify You Help us to be satisfied in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.